Greetings and welcome to Flanagan's Ecologic. I am your host, Ted Flanagan, and today I'm joined by George Lindsay. You know, I grew up with the Lindsays and on Long Island when I was a kid, and George was the older brother of some of the Lindsays that I went to school with. He's now the head of the Christine Foundation, which is an interesting nonprofit in, in Oyster Bay, Long Island. Uh, it has a mission of preserving Oyster Bay's marine heritage by involving the community in traditional boat building. What an interesting project. We're going to talk about that project. We're going to talk, talk about the launch of the Ida May just a couple of months ago and what's next for George and the Christine Foundation. Delighted to have George on the podcast today. Hey, George, welcome to the podcast. How are you doing today? I'm doing great. Thank Good you for inviting me. Good stuff. And I, I, I see that there's sunny there. It's a sunny day on Long Island. It is. Unfortunately, not quite enough wind for the sailing I want to do later, but it's a beautiful day. <laughs> you know, I teed you up in the intro uh, as, as being the, at the, the head of the Christine Foundation. Um, such an interesting thing that you're, that w with what you're doing. And I, as I understand it, the mission is to preserve Oyster Bay's marine heritage. Um, by involving the community in traditional boat building. It's such a fascinating concept. How did you come up with that? Well, I didn't come up with it. Um, you know, the, the history is there was a major commercial boat building yard, uh, the Jacobson, Jacobson Shipyard in Oyster Bay. Uh, going back to the turn of the century, they built boats for World War One and World War Two, patrol boats for the Navy. They built tugboats, they maintained tugboats. And it wasn't until the 1980s that it really uh, started to go, uh, they gave up on the commercial shipyard. And it was going to be developed, um, the whole property along the waterfront in Oyster Bay. There were developers interested and a lot of people in the community got worried about it. We got the state and the county and our state legislatures involved in, in the town of Worcester Bay. And the short story is that the whole property was saved from turning into a giant commercial development or a million condos. Um, and it is now a sort of not-for-profit Waterfront Center, the Waterfront Center, not-for-profit sailing school and marine education center, uh, kayak and paddleboard rentals. Yeah, it's just, it's just a great, rowing great, club. Great facility. Clint Smith, who was a former harbor master in Oyster Bay, um, was determined that there should be a some continuation of the tradition of boat building. Hmm. And he persuaded the town and the state to allocate one of the old buildings from the shipyard, Building J, uh, and keep it as a boat building shop. And he instigated the restoration of the Oyster Sloop Christine for the waterfront center and set up the Christine Oyster Sloop Preservation Corporation. Uh, and then a few years later, he was able to to lobby through his state through Senator Marcelino um, to get the state to 
actually tear down Building J and build a new Building J that was considerably drier <laughs> and, uh, uh, and has been a fantastic shop and was large enough to get the Christine in. So the, 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 this, so the Christine happened several years ago and, and was restored. Is that right? Christine was restored 20 years ago. 20 years ago. And then the Ida May, as I understand it, the Ida May was a, the first uh, diesel-powered uh, oyster dredging ship. And, and you were going to try to restore the original ship, but it was too far gone and you decided to start from scratch. Yeah, exactly. The, the original Ida May was built by Frank M. Flower, who's the patriarch of the Flower Oyster Company in Bayville. Um, he built it on the beach in Bayville. The story was that he was, they were already farming oysters in Oyster Bay. They started in 1890, I think, the Flower family started farming oysters in Oyster Bay. And, um, and he, that what that winter in 1923 or 24, he sent his two sons into take a load of oysters into uh, South Street Seaport in Manhattan in the middle of winter in one of their little sailboats. And they disappeared for four days in a storm. He didn't know where they were. They finally turned up in City Island and they were okay. But Frank decided that he needed a bigger, stronger boat. And power was just coming into the industry. Um, the sailboats were starting to get repowered with motors, diesel or steam motors. Uh, but he designed the item A to be a diesel-powered boat. And it took him about two years to build it in front of his house on the beach in David. And then, and then you, you got you and you, you guys decided that, that it was that, that boat was too far gone. Yeah, he it fished for seventy seven years in Oyster Bay, and then in two thousand and two they donated it to the Waterfront Center. And Clint Smith, who had restored the Christine at that point, had this idea that he wanted to restore it. And then when they started poking around at it, it turned out it was way too rotten. Yeah. And, yeah. Uh, um, so then they they got Ian McCurdy, who was a local uh, marine architect, uh, and with him, uh, as he was from McCurdy and Rhodes, his, his father was really McCurdy and Rhodes, but he is still working. For I that remember. Family. I remember that, and went went to school with Ian. Yeah, and uh, so Ian and some other people got together and they took all the lines off the original item A <clears throat> and then took the design because the, the concept that uh, Clint then came up with was, well, we'll build a copy of it and give it to the Waterfront Center to use for their marine education program. But that in order for that to work, you had to be able to get Coast Guard approval for the boat to carry passengers for hire. And we knew that the original item A was probably not gonna, the design of it, probably not gonna make that. So we had, they asked Ian to uh, take that original design and tweak it. 
So it was adjusted a little bit deeper, a little bit wider to make it more stable. Mm -hmm. And also, uh, but uh, length and width were adjusted to be sure to do it. As it turned sense. out, when we pulled it out of Building J, it cleared the width of the door by about half an inch. Oh, no. <laughs> <laughs> well, now, did you did you actually harvest the lumber to and mill the lumber to build the the, the new version of the item? Uh, I... We didn't harvest it. Uh, some of it we did mill on, on site. We had three local tree companies that uh, would ask, you know, if you if somebody had a big tree fall down in their backyard or wanted trees removed for a project, uh, these guys would ask them, would you be willing to donate the wood to the IDMA project? And if they were, they would cut, cut the trees in long lengths instead of chopping it up into two foot long pieces. Uh, and bring them to us and drop them off in our yard. And we did have a uh, sawmill. And uh, so fair amount of lumber we did get locally. Um, what what kind of tree, what kind of wood was it? What the structure of the boat is entirely white oak or black locust. Uh, black locust is, is very common locally. Uh, it's a very, very dense, very hard wood. White oak is a beautiful wood, and that's, uh, you know, what the majority of the framing, planking of the boat is white oak. But we also got some cherry, we got some, a little bit of local cedar. We got quite a lot of black walnut uh, that, that is a very good local tree. And then you you, you described to me I, I I saw the the um, I don't know what to call it the oven that you created that must be twenty or more feet long because you had to steam up these planks and then to bend them or to get them to to wrap around the hull. So the the uh, when we got to planking the hull the the, the the steam box had originally been built when they were repairing the Christine. Uh, placing planks on the Christine. We had to rebuild it a little bit this past fall. Um, but it's 40 foot long box. It has two what looks like, you know, Rube Goldberg boilers, a couple of old uh, uh, 50 gallon drums piled on top of each other and plumbed into the box and with a firebox. And we we collected scrap wood for 12 years, and then this winter when we were planting the boat, we fed it all into those two <laughs> burners. So you take a, a 30 to 40 foot long, two inch thick oak plank and put it in the in this long box, and then steam uh, it for two to three hours. Then take it out and bend it onto the boat. And surprisingly, even white oak, two inch thick, bends. two inch, two inch thick. It, yeah, it's not yeah. easy, but it does bend. <laughs> so the boat, uh, the the boat is is was launched uh, what a month or two ago. 
May 3rd, yeah. May 3rd, congratulations. That must have been a wonderful day. Two months ago. It was, a, it was it, getting up to that day from between last Thanksgiving and May 3rd was uh, a push and the last six weeks, I would say, was closer to panic than push. But, um, <laughs> I'm sure. Uh, you know, my, my retirement hobby turned into a seven-day-a-week job. <laughs> and you had a, yeah, I know, I know, I, I, I saw you doing, I saw you doing it on a Sunday, I think. Did, you had, you had a, uh, what what do you call it, the, the a shipwright, is that the term, who actually yes, built? Yes, we had, well, there were two, actually. The, the beginning of the project, keel was laid, and the beginning of the framing was done by a shipwright named Dave Short, who had, um, and then after a, Two years into the project, and this was all before I actually got involved, Clint Smith had started it. Uh, but they ran out of money. <laughs> and so nothing happened for about almost two years uh, while they got reorganized, and at which point Dave Short had moved back to Maine and had other projects. And uh, but we got Josh Herman, who lives in Northport, and the similarly trained yeah. shipwright, fairly young guy, um, but with a lot of experience. And uh, so he, he oversaw the project. And he had friends and apprentices who would come in and work with him some. Um, towards the end, this last couple of months when we were planking, and it was the real push was on. We had for his crew, yeah. to our volunteers. And how many? For most of the twelve years, it was Josh coming one or two days a week. Right. And how many volunteers do we give credit to in this? Well, we we looked at it uh, just before the launch, and we counted over seventy over the twelve-year period. Yeah. We never had seventy people there at once. No, of course not. Yeah. Uh, uh, George, let's 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 shift a little bit and talk about oysters and sure. uh, the benefits of oysters. The the health benefits of oysters. I did a little bit of research after meeting you down at the ship are are, are surprising. That the whole list of health benefits are are surprisingly long. Do you, do you see oysters as a health food? Um, a health benefit. You mean directly consuming oysters as a health benefit? Yeah, eating them. Mm-hmm. Uh, I think that that's, that's always been sort of up for debate. I never worry too much about that. I just enjoy eating them because I like them. But, <laughs> <laughs> um, well, the, you uh, know, there are people who won't eat raw, raw fish of any kind or raw shellfish of any kind because they're worried about the health risk. Uh, there are certainly, you know, lots of lore about the various benefits of oysters on the human uh there certainly is there certainly is <laughs> but then but then somebody asked me the other day uh you know if they are doing this wonder i, I i've read that a, a mature oyster can filter 50 gallons of water per day uh, and they are filtering out the pollutants in the water aren't they also going through this project the process of biological magnification uh, and and therefore having more and more concentrated pollutants and I read somewhere, and I want you to tell me whether this is nonsense, but I, I read and then wrote, they have the ability to consume 
and then shape pollutants into small packets, which are then deposited on the sea floor. Have you ever heard that? I have. So uh, oysters, yeah, they they don't they they pull particularly uh, biological pathogens out of the uh, out of the water. Um, consume the energy in them, the protein, um, and basically process them out. They don't, they don't accumulate most of them. Even certain heavy metals and other things, they don't accumulate much. Um, so there they are, you know, one of the cleanest, if they're in relatively clean water, they're going to be very clean um, and pretty safe to eat. Uh, you know, the old saying was only in months that have R for oysters. That's basically because that's when the water is colder and the temperature is colder. So there's less chance of anything um, uh, bacteria proliferating. Um, but even that these days, you know, if, if people are harvesting oysters, they usually have them on ice within 20 minutes after they pull them up. And, 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 I, think, and I think oysters are harvested all over the world, right? In, in, in warmer oh, yes. areas and colder areas, they're, yeah. it's all. So yes. uh, what about, what, how do they benefit the marine ecology? Well, I mean, a number of ways, but the primary one is as a, as a filter. They will they will uh, uh, process all kinds of algae, bacteria, and other uh, uh, pathogens in the water, and basically clear them. The, you know the waterfront center down here in town, the Marine Education Center. They often do a little demonstration where they'll put two fish tanks on a table and they both have such cloud, they'll fill them up with cloudy water, you know, polluted with all kinds of algae pulled out of a local stream or something. You can't even see through it. And then they'll take and dump a dozen oysters in one of the fish tanks. And half an hour later, that tank will be absolutely clear. Really? <laughs> Boy, that's a good And the idea. other tank will not have changed at all. Yeah, I, and wow, wow, and I, I mean, I read somewhere that like the, the, there used to be so many oysters in the Chesapeake Bay that they would filter the entire bay's volume of water, and I can't remember whether it was a couple of weeks or something like that. It was phenomenal amount of filtration. Yeah. So well, a lot of that goes seventy gallons a day per oyster. Per oyster, yeah. You know, if we're talking lots and lots of oysters. Yeah, what let's if, if, if you're interested in this or anyone is interested in this, I'll recommend a fantastic book. Uh, it's called The Great Oyster. It's written by Ted Kurlansky, who I love, who's a, a writer, who's done a couple of things like this, but it's essentially a, a, an economic and cultural history of the oyster, in particularly in New York Harbor and in the area around New York. Back in, you know, pre-Civil War, 
the uh, New York Harbor in New York City accounted if, if oysters were the largest export and they counted for a good part of the economy of New York City. Um, New York City oysters were exported all over the world. They were packaged, they were pickled, they were smoked, they were dried, they were, uh, and of course, they were eaten by the ton. If you read, you know, things about, you know, those days, when, when the politicians had a dinner, they consumed vast quantities of oysters, and there were oyster bars all over Manhattan. But New York Harbor was teeming with oysters. The Great South Bay was teeming with oysters. The whole Long Island shoreline and Connecticut shoreline, Long Island Sound, teeming with oysters. And by the 1930s, it was all gone. When they, why did it all go? What were the major causes? Overfishing and pollution. Overfishing and pollution. I mean, they were by the by the nineteen beginning of the century, nineteen ten, and so on. There were oyster dredge steam powered barges with cranes on them, scraping the oysters off the bottom of Great South Bay and, and New York Harbor. Uh, and so uh, and then then of course pollution in New York City. Yeah. Well, how how about Oyster Bay then? Uh, my 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 great grandfather apparently loved oysters, and it was no not a coincidence that he moved to Oyster Bay, or he had a farm in Oyster Bay. But what's what's what was the history in Oyster Bay then of oysters? Well, Oyster Bay was a natural grounds for oysters. There were oysters here definitely. You know, when the first settlers came in in the 17th century, um, uh, I don't know the whole history of commercial fishing in Oyster Bay, but the flower family started uh, harvesting oysters in Oyster Bay in the late you know, 1890s, I think. By the 20th century, by 1920s, they were well into farming oysters. So they had a hatchery that they built in Mill Creek and Bayville, and they were raising baby oysters in the lab, essentially, in the hatchery, shed, um, and then nurturing them in Mill Creek. And then they arranged to, ultimately, I'm not sure when this lease started, but they leased. 1,500 acres of Oyster Bay, called Spring Harbor, from the town of Oyster Bay. And they had the exclusive right to manage and fish those 1,500 acres. And it, I mean, that certainly goes back to at least when I was a kid in the 1950s. There were oyster steaks out here. Uh, so you see, you know, it looked like an old tree floating in the and that marked one of the corners of the property yeah. that the Flower Oyster Company came in. So, so by, by 1985, uh, most of the oyster fisheries around New York region were fished out and polluted. But Oyster Bay remained relatively unpolluted, part thanks to the oyster population. And the Flower Oyster Company 
continued to tinker, Butler Flower, Frank Flower, and then his son Butler tinker with this farming operation, and they made it work. And they were breeding 50 million oysters a year in their hatchery and putting them out into the bay. And, uh, and then they were harvesting clams as well. They started raising and harvesting both clams and oysters. And I think you, you, you told me, I mean, that, that's what it takes to, to have a sustainable crop is you have to be, you have to be nurturing, like you said, 50 million oysters a year and seeding them. And, and now I think you said that the town took a different tact and said, instead, yeah. of, instead of leasing out to one company, we're going to sort of open this up to a 40 or 50 different boatmen. Is that it, right? It's, it's, it's a little more complicated than that, but yeah, the, you know, it takes, about two years to raise an oyster to market size, for the size that restaurants like these days, which is, by the way, about half the size that restaurants in the 19th century liked. They liked them about four inches. Yeah. Now, now mostly you get about two inch oysters. Yeah. Um, but, but two years. Uh, the, uh, um, it takes at least three years for an oyster to reach sexual maturity and reproduce. So, you know, the hatchery was very key because uh, you had to have uh, a constant supply of successfully raised little babies. Yeah. So they would collect the larvae, you know, they would collect breeding size oysters, take them to the hatchery, then they would get a very high success rate from those oysters of being able to raise oysters up to about a quarter of an inch and then a quarter to a half an inch and then put them out in the bay but most of those got harvested before they were of reproductive age hmm. what's happened in the town there's 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 really a variety of things that have conspired against the flower oyster company part of it was the town the town decided in their great wisdom that uh, they weren't getting enough money out of this lease. So the flower company's lease is actually up next year, 2024. Two years ago, the town announced they weren't going to just renew the lease. They were going to put it out for bid. And instead of putting it out as 1,500 acres, they were going to put it out as three, five, 300 acre plots to be bid on individually for five-year leases. Previous lease was 45 years. It takes two to three years to grow an oyster. Nobody's going to bid on a five-year lease. Yeah. Equipment that Flower Oyster Company has is for 1,500 acres. They weren't interested in farming 300 acres. That wasn't going to be economically sustainable for anybody. Town got no bids. Meantime, the economics of the industry are difficult. The flower oyster family, the, the, well, the partners that owned it, they were no longer direct descendants. Yeah. They started to melt down and had some disagreements. And the combination of global warming and uh, creditors um, starfish and uh, oyster drills has made the, you know, made it much more difficult. 
for the farming to be a success. Yeah. Then how, how do you want to educate these kids that are going to go out on the Ida May? Uh, they're going to, you're taking school kids, 40 kids at a time probably, and, and what will be the message? Uh, it will be that we need to restore uh, or we're going to just lament the past? What, what's the, what is the message? We need, we need to restore the natural population, which means that you know we're doing some. We have the... Uh, Oyster, Oyster Bay Coal Spring Harbor Protection Committee has for six years now been conducting an oyster farming project, community oyster farming, where we're growing oysters to market size, but then we're not selling them or eating them. We're, we got the town to designate uh, two sanctuary areas, and we're planting those oysters on those sanctuaries. And we know in, in at least one very good section right in front of this house here in Cold Spring Harbor, off the Laurel Hollow Public Beach, where we have one of the sanctuaries, we now have four to five inch oysters that are reproducing today. Great. Um, and we need to continue that kind of, of conservation project. Um, and we're going to try this winter to get probably three more sanctuary areas designated by the town that nobody will be allowed to fish in. Yeah. So we and can preserve those those breeding stocks. So that's it. one thing. And the okay. other thing is that, that the town needs to... There, there's, there are other models for farming oysters, and it would be great to still have a commercial oystering project here. But the model has changed. That leasing, farming, planting stuff is not the way it's being done in a lot of places. They're growing in cages or on reefs in the flats. And the, but the town has no way to, they don't have any regulations to license that. Mm -hmm. so the so town needs to do their homework. Yeah, action on a number of fronts. Yeah. Hey, this is such an interesting conversation. I've really enjoyed it, George. <laughs> Thanks for uh, thanks for the t your time, but more so thanks for what you're doing with uh, the education about the marine ecology in Oyster Bay. It's good. Well, stuff. let's hope let's hope that you know there's still oysters here when you come back. That's the goal. That's the goal. That's the goal. <laughs> clean well, water and clean water and good oysters. Have a have a great sail this afternoon. Thank you. Don't see any wind, but I'm going to try anyway. <laughs> okay, take Good care. It's great to talk to you. Thank you for thank you for this, and uh, you know, encourage everybody to come visit the Ida May, the Waterfront Center, and Oyster Bay. Absolutely. Have a great day. Okay. Bye. Cheers. That's it. Thanks for tuning in to this episode of Flanagan's Ecologic. Boy, we learned a lot about oysters, didn't we? Have a great day. See you next time. Thank you.